Welcome to the SCG Church Young Adults Podcast, where we get to bring you sermons and content to help you bring you closer to Jesus, develop your faith, and just figure out life. Join us Sunday nights at 7 p.m. in the SCG Church Warehouse for our Young Adult Services, or at our General Services. We hope you enjoy. Amen, amen. All right, you guys may be seated. I know there's a bunch of you guys back there, so if you guys want to grab, there's a bunch of couches and things like that, which you'll need to be in groups because we're going to break up in discussion groups in a bit. Well, anyways, um, if you're new, what's up? My name's Matt, and uh, just, a, just a pastor here that gets to be with you guys today. Um, and I'm excited to be here with you guys today. Like you heard a little bit earlier, we are hopping back into the Book of Romans. It's been a while. I think it's been a month or two since we've been on a hiatus with the Book of Romans. But before we hop into where I want to go, here's a question I want you guys to turn and discuss, all right? I think I got a slide for the question. Do I have a slide? I do. Next slide for me, please. What is something your parents let you do, but you aren't going to let your kids do, all right? Or maybe it was just something they did that was unwise um, that they let you do or did around you. Like my parents used to like smoke in the car. Um, I don't smoke, but like uh, they used to smoke in the house. Like in fact, growing up, I remember like walking like in, in my house after school and it was like there was a fog machine on in my house, right? Um, I don't know if uh, baby boomers knew about this thing called secondhand smoke. I think they did, but anyways. Um, so yeah, so I'm not going to smoke around my kids. I don't smoke anyways, right? But what, what about you? Is it, I don't know, not having a curfew. What is it, all right? So I'm going to give you guys maybe a minute, turn and discuss with some people around you. Ready, set, go. All right, uh, I think I got a photo. Did you, were you end up able to get that photo from the email back there? Were you? Were you? Were you able to get that photo from that email? No, not yet? Yes, all right, perfect. All right, um, let me read this. All right, so I found a BuzzFeed article that this was the headline, which I had, I had to click it. Anyways, it says, every generation raises kids differently. And naturally, with hindsight, people realize that they can improve upon or do a complete 180 on the way that they raise future generations. For example, this baby in London in the 1930s is being hung from a cage outside an apartment window so it can sunbathe and get fresh air because it's, quote, healthy. So yeah, placing your child in the cage several stories up while letting it just sit in the sun is not something that we should do today. Like, what? Right, so I found some things that uh, baby booming parents did um, that like millennial kids are now looking at. Like, what were you thinking, right? I'll give you just a few. Um, not all of them are really bad. Some of them are pretty bad. Mom would, let, uh, would send me to the nearby 7-Eleven with a handwritten note, giving me permission to buy cigarettes for her, and the clerk would accept it. Different world, different world. According to my dad, I have Pepsi in every single one of my baby bottle picks because they thought keeping me caffeinated all day meant I'd sleep better at night. What? Okay, so uh, I mean, uh, at bedtime, my father would come in my brother in my bedroom and make patterns in the dark with a lit cigarette. Oh, happy memories. <laughs> Here's my favorite one. Remember how there used to be half-sized cans of beer? My dad would give me a mini Budweiser to settle me down. This was ages three and four. I tell people I quit drinking when I started kindergarten and didn't begin again till college. I think it's hilarious. But... Up front with you and on, it says nothing to do with what we're doing today. I just came across that like, I don't know, 20, 30 minutes ago, and I thought that was so funny I needed to share with you guys. But here's what I do need you guys to do. I want you to grab your Bibles. I want you to go with me to the book of Romans. We are in week 21 now of our book of Romans. I know we've taken four or five or six, what is it? Six, 22 um, of the, are we really? I only have 21 pages of notes. I didn't speak one of the weeks. Boom. Okay. Um, Week 22 now, week 21 of me speaking through the book of Romans, and um, there's a lot to cover, right? So we've gone over um, uh, all the chapters, uh, one through eight, and uh, now in chapter nine, it gets a little bit 
It gets really challenging, I'll be honest with you. So here's what I want you to do. Go with me to Romans chapter 9, verses 1 through 13 is where we're going to be camping out today. We are taking, I think, 25 more weeks, by the way, going through all 430 verses of the book of Romans, and still, we still have a long way to go. There's 16 chapters. Now, chapter 9 um, has, I guess, let's say, the dubious honor of being one of the most emotionally volatile doctrines of the entire Bible, and that is of this thing called election. Raise your hand if you have any concept of what the word election means. Raise your hand if you have zero concept. Let me just be real. Like, you have, like, right, raise your hand if you've ever heard of uh, predestination. Okay. Raise your hand if you've never heard of predestination. Raise your hand if you've heard of Calvinism. Raise your hand if you've heard of Armenianism. Raise your hand if you've heard of Molinism. Interesting. Okay. Um, so Romans chapter 9 begins to uncover all of these things. And it's a super challenging book, and I'll be honest with you, we're not going to solve it today. There have been people that have studied their entire lives, just the book of Romans, chapter 9, uh, trying to uncover um, uh, is it Arminianism, Molinism, and Calvinism. And by the way, we're not even really going to be talking about those things today. That's next week. I'm just setting up the, the discussion for next week, which is Romans chapter four, 9, verses 14 through 33. That's where we're really going to be spending a lot of time talking about Calvinism, uh, predestination, Molinism, Arminianism, all these things. If you have no idea what any of that stuff means, that's totally okay, because most people don't. They don't, they, don't, they don't understand what any of that stuff is. And by the way, this is a conversation that we have like as Christians in a family. Um, I would never have this conversation with non-Christians. They don't care about predestination. Does God shoot? They don't care about any type of stuff, because it's not on their radar, right? This is a conversation that we as Christians have in an open hand, and all three positions can be theologically correct and have been an orthodox teaching for the last 2,000 years, right? Orthodox means right teaching, things like that, right? So um, a large percentage of pastors that I know actually try not to t teach on Romans chapter 9, um, because even if they're going through the book of Romans chapter 9, it's just so confusing, and it probably just... It, 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 it's just confusing, right? And I'm not standing up here saying that I have any of the answers um, by any means, right? I've just studied and, and spent a good time reading some smart men, and, and I'm just going to present to you their thoughts. Now, here's the next thing for tonight and really next week. These aren't sermons. Um, I don't really have like a landing point like, and now do this, apply this into your life. One of the reasons we do discussion groups so you can bring application in those groups with your peers but today really is just a Bible study. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to walk through some of the context of Romans chapter 9 with you and, uh, and then tell you guys in your groups, okay, what is, what is God teaching and what are you discovering as we go through Romans chapter 9? So like I said, today we're just framing the discussion for next week because next week's where we answer, we temporarily answer this question. Does God choose you or do you choose God? Does a more blunt way of saying this, does God literally from his throne in heaven before people are even created, does he choose certain people to go to heaven? And then does he choose certain people to go to hell regardless of what these individuals do? Right? That really is the question that Romans chapter 9 begins to open up. But it's been a few weeks since we've been in the book of Romans. We did some series before, um, a little pause. And so let me get us kind of all on the same page to remind us what the book of Romans really is about. You can break up the book of Romans really into five sections. So if you're taking notes, here are your five sections. Number one is the problem in Romans chapter 1 and 2. What's the problem? Sin and humanity, right? There's this contagion that's worse than COVID-19 that's infected all of humanity, right? And it has not just made us isolated and six feet apart from other people. It's separated us from God six billion feet away from him, right? And in our natural, it's called unregenerate state, that we are separate and condemned from God. It's a problem. And every single person has been infected with this thing called sin. And the Bible tells us there's no, not one that's good, and you can't do anything to get to God. That's a problem. Number two, in Romans chapter 3 um, and through 6 is the provision, which is salvation in Christ, right? Romans 3 says, For all have fallen short of the glory of God. 
We've all sinned. We've all messed up. Romans 6, what it teaches us, right? It says that, um, that there's a free gift of God in, etern- in, in eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord, right? Even though that you have fallen, even though that you have sinned, there is a free gift given to you by Jesus Christ, an extension from heaven, a hand that can pull you up out of your sin, right? And that's the provision. Number three is the power. We learned about this in the last handful of weeks, Romans 6 through 8. This is victory over sin, Romans 8, 28. Um, That God can work for good for those who believe in Christ Jesus as Lord. What is that good? In verse 29 of chapter 8, it's that you can conform you to the image of his son. That that there is power in, in God's spirit to move greatly in your life, to save you from your sin, to give you victory over sin. And we talked about one of the things is called pneumatology, which is um, uh, uh, the study of the Holy Spirit. And in it, it's the idea that uh, God gives us his spirit that actually empowers us to live out righteousness, which, by the way, is the theme of the book of Romans. What's righteousness means? To pursue a right relationship with God and to pursue a right relationship with others. And then Romans 9 and 11 is where we camp out today, and that's the predicament, which is the Jewish situation. That's where we're going to be spending the next handful of weeks. What's up with the Jews? Right? What's up with the what's up with the Dennis Pragers and the Ben Shapiro's and all those people? Like, what's going on? What's going on with those lights? Um, whatever it is, right? And then uh, Romans twelve through sixteen is the practice. That is, what does it look like for you to live out your faith? What does it look like for you to pursue a relationship with the Lord this side of heaven and actually move forward in your faith to grow as a follower of Jesus? Right. So I'm going to do them quickly. The problem, the provision, the power, the predicament, and the practice. But I'll make it more simple for you guys making notes. You can really break up the book of Romans really into two large sections. Romans chapter 1 through 11 is theology, right? This is theos, uh, uh, the study of God. Ology is the study of, right? So theos is God, ology the study of. So um, Romans 1 through 11 is him really trying to explain to you what the gospel is, right? Like what, 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 is, what is faith? What is, who is Jesus? All of that stuff, theology. Verses 12 to 16, I like to think of it as walkology, it actually starts in the book of Romans chapter 12. We'll get to it. Therefore, in view of God's mercies, and so he says, and therefore of all the stuff that we just talked about, this then now is how you should live. It says in verse two, offer yourselves as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing uh, to God, right? So it, it, it creates a, a, a change in, verse, or in chapter 12. In light of what we've just discovered about God, this then is how you should apply all of that to your life, all right? Are we on the same page? All right, so today, Paul, he uh, in chapter nine moves the spotlight away from all of humanity and like we said a little bit earlier, now deals specifically with the Jewish people. And in a moment, we're going to see that Paul is, is absolutely heartbroken because he's Jewish and he loves his people. And so really the purpose of chapters 9 through 11 really are to answer these important questions for Jewish people. If I was ever sitting with someone who was Jewish, I would hand them the book of Romans, specifically verses 9, 10, and 11. Here are the questions that um, Paul begins to kind of unpack in Romans chapter 9. What does it mean that Israel has missed its Messiah? What does it say about God? What does it say about Israel? What does it say about our present position in and with God? The question kind of goes like this for us. How can I be secure in God's love and salvation when it seems that Israel was once loved and saved, but now seems to be rejected and cursed? Will God also reject and curse me one day like it appears that he's rejected and cursed Israel? Now, these are important questions, right? Because if the Jewish people were once God's chosen people but aren't anymore, can we one day also become unchosen in some capacity and way? See, the truth is, I actually think the story of the Jewish people um, is actually an incredibly sad story. I want you to think of it this way. Here is a group of people that counted itself as having an inside track with God. In fact, they even saw themselves as, as people of God, the chosen nation close to God, and that had various advantages that no other nation in human history has ever had. And so the Israelites, the Jews, they had considered themselves special. 
And so as Paul begins this section, he does so with a clear acknowledgement that this nation has been special. God has done some really cool things with the Jewish people, but they are currently very far from God. In fact, they crucified and nailed him to a cross. I want you to grab your Bibles. With that in the background of your, of your mind, I want you to go with me to Romans chapter 9, verses 1. We're going through 1 through 3 right now. It says this. If not, it's on the Sky Bible. Perfect. Um, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears my witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow, unceasing anguish in my heart. By the way, I'm in the ESV version. For I could wish that myself were accursed. The Greek word's anathema, completely separate, cut off from the Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. Here's what he's saying. I wish so wholly and with so much zeal that my fellow Jews could come to Christ even if it meant that I could go to hell. If I could stand before God and say, choose them and not me, I would attempt and try to do that. See, Paul first wants to address, and the reason he writes this in such a way, he wants to first address and talk to the community that he loves. See, the ancient Jews thought he had become a traitor, that he had become an enemy, right? That he went jihad for Jesus, right? And that, that he became um, uh, evil in all these different ways. And Paul didn't want to answer all the above questions that we just talked about until he could communicate rather that he was no enemy to the Jewish people, but rather that he was a grieving friend and loved the Jewish people. In fact, if we could go back in time, we would learn that the Jews were Paul's worst enemies, right? They harassed him. They persecuted him from town to town to town, from boat to boat, whatever it was. Um, They lied about him. In fact, they even created moments of violence against him. Yet, he still loved them fervently. He still loved them intentionally, right? If I'd ask you a question, what would be your definition of love? What would you say? You could say a few things, right? Love is a feeling, love is an action, love is a commitment, whatever. Love is really, is really this, to will the good of another even at great cost to yourself. To will the good of another even at great cost to yourself. And this really is what Paul wanted more than anything, to will the good of the Jewish people even if it meant something negative to himself. Love is also another thing. It's an unconditional commitment to an imperfect person. Most important part is this, to bring that person into a right standing before God. That's what Paul wanted to do, to bring the Jewish people into a right standing before God. Now, I'm just going to be honest with you. I don't know if I love like this. I probably don't love like this, right? Like, do you love like this? Do you have this burden for lost people that you would be willing to be separate from the, from, from the relationship of God that you have so that other people could develop a relationship with them? One of your discussion questions, I think, is centered around this. Like, I just, I just don't love people like that. And I read that, I was even convicted thinking like, what was different about Paul? What, what did he know about Christ or what did he know about lostness that so emboldened and empowered and, and made him love people that were separate and far from him, right? See, the type of love that Paul is talking about here is like the type of love that you have for a family member who doesn't know Christ. You have this burden that you want this individual, it could be an aunt, an uncle, a grandma, a grandpa, a sister, even a friend or a coworker, whatever it is, someone in your, in, in your life that you're really close with and you know that if their life was taken from them tonight, because they have not, conf- like Romans 10, we'll get to in a few weeks, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is the Lord and believe in your heart that God had risen him from the dead, it says that you will be saved. You know that these people have not confessed with their mouth. They have not believed in their heart, and so, therefore, they will not be saved. And that, that's a burden over, over your life, right? Just today, actually, I was meeting with one of our youth volunteers, and uh, he's a Navy chaplain, and he shares a story with me of how he got his current position with the um, servicemen that he gets to minister to. Just before him, actually a few months ago, um, there was an older man who was like 50 who would tell all the servicemen that they were just going to hell. And this is, and obviously none of the servicemen wanted to talk to them about the stuff they were struggling with and this, that, or the other thing. And I said, well, let me ask you kind of a challenging question then. Are these servicemen that you minister to and that the other guy was ministering to not followers of Jesus? Like, 
that they don't believe in Jesus? And he said, yeah. And so I said, well, are you going to be honest with them too? And he said this, and I'll quote him. He said, yes, I, I will tell them the truth, but I won't tell the bad news with a smile on my face like he did. I'll tell them that there's a God who loves and cares for them, and I love and care for them too. See, the same exact information can be shared, and Paul's about to share some pretty confronting and difficult things to the Jewish people that they're not going to want to hear. And so he first tells them, hey, before we hop into this kind of challenging stuff, I need you to know that I care for you, and I'm saying this because I care and, because I, and I love you. And I, as a pastor, I, I kind of, I'll say it this way. If all you ever want from a pastor is soft words, you will develop a hard heart towards God. In the book of um, Timothy and even the book of Titus, it talks and prophesies about a day where there'll be a generation of young people that will crowd around themselves pastors that just want to itch their ears. You just want a guy on a stage that's going to tell you things that you want to hear. God's to bless you in health and wealth and this, that, and the other thing. And that couldn't be further, by the way, from God wants you to be holy, even if that means that you're not healthy and wealthy and all of that other type of stuff. And, and so Paul's the type of guy that's willing, like we said earlier, love is an unconditional commitment to an imperfect person to bring those people to a right standing before God. That's the most loving thing that you could possibly ever do. And so Paul wants to communicate to these people that he loves them. Go with me to verse four and five. They are the Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promise. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. A few things here, right? Uh, Paul gives seven specific blessings and privileges that the Jews had that no other group in human history has ever had. But even worse, he tells them that they may be in a worse footing with God because of their rejection of Jesus, even than the Gentiles of the age. The Gentiles were non-Jewish people, by the way. I'm going to give you the seven really quick, and you're welcome to highlight these because they're in there. The first is the national adoption. We talked about this in our Galatians series a year or two ago. I don't remember when it was, right? But it's the idea that God had grafted, adopted certain people to be a part of his family. Number two is that they were eyewitness of God's glory. If you know anything about the Bible, you'll know about the book of Exodus and even Joshua, right? There was this, this thing called the Shekinah glory. It was where God's spirit was basically dwelling in a cloud, and it was moving with his people. And eventually, it would be in this place called the Tabernacle in the Holies of Holies, right? And for those of you guys that care about theology, it's called a theophany. It's where God physically manifests in, in the world around us. Number three is God made covenants with them. What is a covenant? It's a contract, basically. It's a promise where God says, I'm going to do this. There's conditional and unconditional uh, covenants. I'm going to do this if you do that, or I'm going to do this regardless of whatever you do. There's a plethora of commandments or uh, covenants in the Old Testament. There's the Edemic covenant. What do you mean with Adam? There's Noahic covenant. What do you mean with Noah? There's the Abrahamic covenant. You mean with a man named Abraham? We'll talk about him today. There's the Mosaic covenant, which you know probably of the the ten uh, the ten commandments, right? Those tablets. And then there's the Davidic covenant, uh, and then there's the New covenant. Um, and and there's, so there's there's a plethora of different covenants in Scripture. Number four, they were recipients of the and custodians of the law of God. God had given the Jewish people through Moses in the book of Exodus chapter 20 the commandments. These are the things of what I want your life to look like. By the way, the first five out of the commandments are all about your vertical relationship with God so that if you can develop a good relationship with God, you will what? Develop good relationships with others where six, seven, eight, nine, and 10 come from. It's all about our relationship with other people, right? Number five, they had the privilege of temple service. God literally told them what the type, the type of temple, the church basically they could build and how he was going to dwell with them and things like that. Number six, they were, they were also recipients of many of the promises of God. There's like 600 and I can't remember off the top, it's like 6,632 or something like that promises in scripture. And God had tons of promises for his people. Just like as a father, I'm making promises to my daughter. 
Number seven, they had a lineage that any nation can be proud of. Their forefathers were the patriarchs, and, they, and I'll talk about who they are in a second. And they were the nation through whom the Messiah came. See, in spite really of all of these great privileges and these great um, revelations of God, they rejected Jesus. And so they were not experiencing the blessings that one receives when they come into a relationship of knowing Jesus. See, I think one of the saddest things we can ever see is someone who has wasted their potential, who had privileges and opportunities to do something great, and they squandered it. As a youth pastor, I've been here for over a decade, um, and I've said this before, there has probably been 12 to 15,000 students that have sat in the seats that you're in right now over 12, 13 years' time that I've been here. And then every time I open up uh, Instagram, which is like once a year now, because um, it's kind of just depressing for me, um, I always see a student that had some incredible gifts and who seemed like they were moving forward in their faith maybe years ago, wasting their callings and their potential on drugs, sex, relationships, whatever it may be, right? I remember one student um, who came through our, our group more than a decade ago, walked through the, those doors right there, I remember, I remember actually the Tuesday night that I met him, and this was 11 or so years ago, um, whose dad passed away just a handful of weeks earlier, and I grew pretty close to this one kid. I be, kind of became over, over the years like a big brother um, for him for five or so years. And for a season, um, I remember he, he wanted to go to Biola, he wanted to become a pastor, all the same things that I did. And I remember that I used to have him on this very stage helping run games in front of 200, 300 you know, of his peers. Um, I would even, uh, he would help me write discussion questions for his peers. In fact, he would even co-teach with me sometimes. I would teach him how to write sermons, this, that, and the other thing. And I ran into somebody about a year ago um, who told me that this same individual was now a drug addict and wasn't following the Lord at all. And I just remember being kind of sad for the rest of the entire day because I don't think there's anything sadder than wasted potential, especially when it comes to being used by God. Here's the point. Don't waste your time doing nothing with God or Time will waste you into nothing before God. And so I want to be upfront with you. The rest of the book of Romans, chapter 9, is going to be difficult to understand. And it's going to be difficult to wrestle with. Because it begins to talk about a lot of things that are just really complex, to be honest with you. Something about God's foreknowledge. Uh, we're going to discover next week something called middle knowledge. It's going to talk about his omniscience. When theologians use the word omniscience, it means that God is all-knowing. And when theologians say that God is all-knowing, it means that God has never learned anything ever. He's never had an aha moment. For all time, always, he's known all things. And then it's, we learn about something called God's omnisapience. We're going to really hone on this next week. Omnisapience is the, the idea that God himself can view all possible realities and outcomes. What's that movie? Um, it's like one of the Marvel movies um, where there's like this guy, Dr. Strange, and he's like hovering, doing something weird, and he's like, his, like, his like face is doing this crazy thing. You guys know what movie I'm talking about? Which one is it? Which one is it? Which one? Avengers, but Avengers what? Infinity War, all right, amped on that. Uh, uh, right, so, and he's like, like, what are you doing? Or something, he's like, I, I viewed like 1.2 billion or million, you know, possible outcomes. And he's like, there's one where we can win. That is a, 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 a obviously, a fictitious illustration of omnisapience. It is the idea that God would know what you would be like if you were born in a different ethnicity, in a different time, in a different location, if you were a different gender, everything. God literally can view you in all possible and logical outcomes. He would know what I would be like if I was born um, 2,700 years ago. He would know what that mat would look like, what, he, what his experiences would be. He knows all, everything, right? That's omni-sapience, and we're going to kind of unpack that uh, next week. But here's one thing. So the prophet Isaiah hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years before the book of Romans was written and penned by Paul, uh, he says this. 
He says in Isaiah 55, he says, my ways are not your ways. He's talking about God and my thoughts are not your thoughts. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. Here's the idea here. An infinite God is going to act in ways that don't make sense to finite people. An infinite God is going to act in ways that don't make sense to finite people. I'll say it this way. God is not bigger than you think. He is bigger than you can possibly think. Follow with me in verse 6. says this. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For I want you to highlight, not all who are descendants from Israel belong to Israel. This is, in fact, the very statements that got Paul eventually killed. Because notice with me, he says, for not all who are descendants from Israel belong to Israel. What he's saying is not all people who are Jewish are actually in the family of God. This is stunning, because the Jews, and I'll I'll talk about this in a second, believed just because they were born uh, uh, Jews, that God owed them salvation. God owed them a relationship, just because of the family that they were born in. Now, how does this look in our world today? Well, mom and dad are Christian, so like, you know, God and I are cool, right? Like, I grew up up going to church. I know a few Bible verses, like, we're cool, right? Paul's going to teach us something a little bit different, but a few things. Number one, Israel, a translation of it can specifically mean governed by God. That's actually a translation of what Israel means, governed by God. And so Paul says here that not all of people who are Israelites or Jewish people are truly and actually governed by God. So did God's word fail centuries ago when he said he had a plan for his people? No. The truth is, he always was saying, not everyone who is a Jew is actually a part of my family. Now, you have to, you have to see how divisive this was in the ancient world, because even today, Jews believe that they are the sole inheritance and they are the only people in God's family. And being born Jewish, even as a secular Jew, you are still in the family of God because of the type of blood that you have going through your veins. And so Paul tells us that not everyone is actually in the family of God, only those that are, quote, governed by God, which is going to be important for where we're about to head. But we can also see a parallel situation that people that call themselves Christians. I am sure you know of people who, quote, call themselves Christians, and you know deep down they're not a Christian. In the book of Matthew chapter 15, verse 9, it says, 15 verse 9? I think so. Um, It says, uh, these people honor me with their lips. And by the way, this is a prophecy or or, uh, a quotation from Isaiah. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts, the volitional center of who they are, they are far from me, right? So not everyone who calls themselves a Christian is a truly follower of Christ. So back, back to the Jews. Number one, they thought that they were extraordinarily special. They thought God picked them because God saw something unique. God saw something distinctive in them. And so he plucked down from heaven, surveyed all of the people groups, and looked to Asians and Indians and all other people and went, nope, I'm going to go with the Jewish people. Plucked them out and said, I'm going to make you special. And so number one, you can imagine even current Jews, but especially ancient Jews, they were extraordinarily racist. They actually thought of themselves as intrinsically better than everyone else. And number two, they thought God elected them, chose them, and condemned the rest of humanity forever. And so here, Paul introduces this idea of election. Jews understood as election as this, God choosing individuals unilaterally before they were born to be saved by placing them in Jewish families. I'm going to say this again because this is what election is, by the way. That God chose individuals unilaterally before they were born to be saved by specifically placing them in Jewish families that they would, uh, uh, because it was the Jews that were saved. That's how Jews understood what election was. And so if you were born into a Jewish family and you had Jewish blood in your veins, all is well because you were saved. However, if you weren't born into a Jewish household and you don't have Jewish blood going through your veins, you were going to hell and there isn't anything that you could possibly do about that. You were simply not elected by God. Oh, well. 
And so Jews relished the thought that God had selected them from all the nations of the earth to be recipients of this blessings and this privilege of being in a relationship with them. And they had no problem viewing the rest of human history and the rest of humanity as non-elect. They were perfectly content to regulate all those other people to hell. And so Paul kind of pauses it and he goes, hey, by the way, um, there isn't anything special about you Jewish people either. And he's like a super Jew, right? Like he wore a cape, right? He's a super Jew. And he's like, look, there's nothing special about Jewish people. God had done some really special and cool things with us, but us intrinsically, nothing special about us. So yeah, there are, being Jewish does give you certain privileges. God had made himself known to the whole world through the Jewish race as a Jewish person. But that doesn't mean that Jews are any more saved than any, the rest of humanity because Jesus himself came as a human being. If anything, unbelieving Jews are in a worse position because they should have known and recognized Jesus before everyone else. I can imagine going home right after this, and I, I knock on my door, I open up my door, it's locked, I try to get in, and I, uh, my wife opens it, and she's just looking at me, and she's stunned. She has no idea who I am, so I'm trying to get in the house, and she's pushing me away, and I'm trying to hug her, and she's like, who are you? And she's trying to claw away from me. You know what would hurt my heart if for some reason she just could she, she forgot who I was, the person that she's been married to for almost eight years now? We've been together for almost 11 years, right? Like, do you know what's that would hurt me? We were so, we, we, we've entered into a covenant of marriage with each other. How, how do you not know who I am? How do you not know what my voice sounds like? How do you not know that I come home at this time every single Sunday? How do you not know any of this stuff? Can you imagine what it was like for Jesus? God in a bod that shows up in Israel 2,000 years ago, comes to his very people and they don't recognize him. He knocks on their doors and they claw away from him. Rather, they pull out bats and they try to beat him to death, which they eventually do. That's, just, that, that's the predicament that they're in. They should have recognized him. They should have known him. They're supposed to be in the family of God. And so I think Jews are in, worse, in a worse situation. Why? Because when God gives light, he expects us to live in that illumination. Or I'll say it this way. When God gives light, he expects us to follow its illumination, to live in light of that light. Verse 7. And not all children of Abraham, I want you to highlight Abraham. So not all children of Abraham because they are his offspring. Really quick, if you were with us in, oh, it was like, I don't know, 20 weeks ago or something, in, in the book of uh, Romans chapter 4, we learned about a man named Abraham. Abraham quickly is known as the father of the Jewish people. One day, God came to really interrupt his story. At the time, Abraham worshipped the moon goddess, and he did so because it was an ignorance. God really hadn't made himself known yet um, uh, uh, to anybody, and he's about to make himself known through this man named Abraham. And so God does finally reveal himself to Abraham, and it was during the time in his life that God revealed himself. Abraham believed God, it says, responded to his will, and trusted that God would fulfill his promises. In other words, God gave him light, and Abraham is known as a man of faith and loved by the Jews and the whole Islamic world, by the way. I'll talk about that in a second, because he was a person that God gave light, and he lived in and followed uh, its illumination, what it meant. I want you to go with me to the book of Genesis chapter uh, 15 really quick. If not, it's up on there. It says this. And he brought him outside and said, look towards heaven. This is God talking to Abraham. And number the stars. If you're able to number them, then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and he counted to it him as righteous. This verse is the beginning of what we know as the Abrahamic covenant, right? That God would populate a nation from Abraham's family. We know these people as the Jewish people in the country of Israel. And through this one family lineage, God would one day send one, one person who would be the savior of the world. 
Now, did Abraham centuries and centuries and millennia and millennia know that it was going to be Jesus? His name was going to be Jesus, that his title was going to be the Christ, that he was going to be the Messiah? Did he know that he was going to live at the very specific time that he was going to live? Did he know that he was, like I said, going to be God in a bod? He didn't know any of that type of stuff, right? All he knew and all he trusted in was that God was going to use his family to bring about somebody one day that was going to solve the sin problem for all of humanity. In other words, he followed Jesus because he followed the promise. I get this question often, like, well, what happened to the Jewish people? Like, what about, what about people before Jesus? How were those Jewish people saved? And it's, it's really simple. Thousands of years later from the story of Abraham, from his very bloodline, a woman in his ancestral tree named Mary would give birth to this Jesus, the Savior of the world. And so Abraham with all of the Jewish people, believed God's promise that pointed them towards and forward to Christ, just like we are believing in God's promise that points us back to what Christ did for us. They were expectant of the promise to be fulfilled, and that's how they were saved. We know the promise was fulfilled, and we live in light of that reality, and so you and I are also saved by the promise. We're saved the very same way. They're saved by the promise. We're saved by the promise. Now, do I think Jewish people are still saved? For those of you guys that care, it's called dispensational theology. Um, that is a question. There's well-respected theologians on both sides. Um, I don't think so. I think in the book of Acts chapter 4, verse 12, it says, salvation is found in no one else, for there's no name given to mankind in which we can and must be saved than Jesus Christ. Um, John 14, 6. Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but except through me. Jesus talks about being the gate, the door. Wide is the gate that leads to destruction. Narrow is the one that leads to life. It is explicitly clear in the New Testament that Jesus is the only way. However, there are still, in the book of Revelation, in the book of Daniel, um, in the book of Isaiah, there are still unfulfilled promises to the Jewish people. And I don't know how God's gonna reconcile that. There's, in the book of Revelation, it gives us some language described. There's 144,000 supposedly Jewish people that God has... Uh, created a remnant in the end times where these Jewish people, he somehow saves. They become Messianic Jews, Jews who have given their life over to Christ, um, it, it seems. And so God still has some plan for the Jewish people. I have no idea what it is. Maybe I'll do some more studying this week and we'll get a little more um, insight into uh, that next week. So anyways, follow with me, verse seven and nine. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it's not the children of the flesh, highlight that, who are the children of God, but the children of the promise, highlight that are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, about this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. Let me give you some background information on this. So Abraham, um, he had two sons of importance, right? Does anyone know their names? Someone said Jesus, not the answer. Uh, Isaac and Ishmael, yeah. So the very first one, a man named Ishmael. The very second one, a man named Isaac. Now, when God said, look, I am going to give you a son and you're going to populate an entire nation, and thousands of years from now, one day, through your blood lineage, the Savior of humanity is going to be born with Abrahamic blood, two, three, four thousand years from this moment, whatever it may be. He took that upon himself and said, well, my wife is pretty old. Like, she's like in her 90s, and I know that women's bodies can't, they're not child-rearing, they can't produce children forever. And so I know that my wife is barren. She cannot have kids. So he comes up with this great plan. I know. I'm going to go sleep with the hot girl next door. That's literally what come, basically comes up. So he goes and knocks on Hagar's house and, uh, and then sleeps with her and then comes home and says, honey, guess what? Um, you know how like God told us and you, like, you've always wanted a kid? Guess what? I got the neighbor pregnant. High five. Right? Not, not popping, right? That's probably not what you should do. Definitely not. God was heated, by the way. God wasn't stoked on this, right? 
Um, and there's some curses that come with it or whatever it was, right? But um, interesting enough, Isaac, all of the Jewish faith, and by the way, the Christian faith, can trace the lineage back to Abraham and to specifically Isaac. Do you know what the whole Islamic faith traces their lineage back to? Ishmael. Both are Abrahamic religions. Um, And I wish we had more time to talk about who Ishmael became to be and how his descendants became extraordinarily evil and the Edomites and all of that, but we don't have time. Paul's point is here. If blessing was guaranteed by physical relationship to Abraham, which every Jew thought, because we are blood-related to Abraham, we therefore saved, then they'd have to say the same about the entire Islamic faith as well. And his, his, his thing is, that's not so. Right? Ishmael would have equal claim to the blessings of the Jews if physical lineage was the sole cause of blessing and being in a relationship with God. Verse 10 and 11 says this, we're wrapping up. Uh, and not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, Though they, I want you to highlight this. Though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. So to some, the, the example of Isaac and Ishmael may not be convincing enough because each child had a different mother, Hagar and Sarah. So this, the, this problem is swept away by the example of Jacob and Esau, for they had the very same father and the very same mother. In fact, the offspring of the same because scripturally, it looks like they were twins. So God, cho- in this story, God chooses one and not the other for some unknown reason. God had chosen one son for some reason and not the other. Verse 13 says this, she was told the older will serve the younger, which is what happened, and it is written, Jacob I love, but Esau I hated. So a few things, the type of language is used here. God didn't hate Esau. In fact, we read later on that he actually blesses him and things like that. But what, what the word hate means, it means pass over. It means choose not to use that within the hidden will of God, he had a very specific purpose for Jacob that he did not have for Esau for some reason. We don't know what it is. But the truth is, it's completely the imperative of God to choose who he uses and who he doesn't. We're going to read about this in, uh, next week where he says something really challenging. Actually, let me see if I can pull it up really quick. It says this in verse 21. Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? The image here is Paul is saying, does God, cannot, God could not look into some people's lives and save them and look into other lives and just condemn them for whatever reason. At least that's what it, a non-hermeneutical reading, it appears what he's saying. I think it's deeper than that, right? I'll just tell you I'm not a Calvinist, um, if that helps you out with anything. But um, it's just the idea that God seems to have chosen some people and not chose another. I think the answer is Molinism. We'll talk about that next week. But here's kind of where I want to land for today. The truth is God is fair to everyone, but it's also in his right to be more than fair to anyone he pleases and chooses. I'm going to say that again. God is 100% fair to everybody, but it's in his per- completely in his power to be more than fair to anyone that he chooses. He can bless certain people more and abundantly than other people. He can save people, whatever. So here's the question. Do we choose God or does God choose us? That isn't something we get to totally unpack, not even next week and not even probably for the rest of our lives. I don't even know if we're going to get to heaven we're going to answer that question, but we're going to attempt to um, uh, answer that in your guys' discussion groups and in next week. But here's what we learn about at least God's power to choose, about his omniscience, omnisapience, his foreknowledge, his middle knowledge. Here's what we learn about all of this type of stuff. It means that God can save anybody. There is no heart that is too hard that God, if, you, if, if he truly desired and truly willed, that he could get. But it also means that he's not obligated to save anybody. And so today, that's what we're gonna talk about in your guys' discussion groups. Put your arm around somebody. I'll pray for you guys. And then you guys can spend 20 minutes or so in your groups. Lord God, we thank you. We thank you, Father, that you are a God that begins where our imagination comes to an end. And as finite people, 
I realize that there's going to be things in Scripture that are just going to be perplexing and confusing to us because you are an infinite God. So today I ask, Lord, that you just move us one step closer, God, to faith. And when you continue to teach us, Lord God, about who you are and about your nature, Lord God, we love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. We hope you enjoyed listening to the SCG Church Young Adults Podcast. For more information about our services, events, and ways to get involved, head on over to scgchurch.org. Thanks again for listening and have a blessed day.